You are listening to the Stand with Dignity podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Today, our workshop uh, slash panel, we're going to try to make it interactive, is on spreading the message of Imam Hussein. And this workshop is sponsored by Stand with Dignity, which is one of many organizations that seek to propagate and spread the message of Imam Hussein. Every year, Stand with Dignity gives out 2,000 red roses in Manhattan, um, along with a little message. Um, And the purpose of this panel is to explore this and other methods of spreading the message of Imam Hussein, specifically online. And we have a few um, things on our agenda, a few questions that we're going to get through. And the way we're going to structure this panel is I'm going to pose a question and we're going to allow our speakers to respond briefly to this question. And then we're going to take questions from the audience about each question um, on the screen. Um, And there are five questions total. So we're going to try to dedicate about Um, between 10 and 15 minutes to each question. And then at the end, if there are any outstanding questions or issues that we haven't touched on, then inshallah we can take even more questions from the audience. So first I'm going to let my esteemed panelists briefly introduce themselves, um, if you don't mind, starting with uh, Reverend John Shuck and just moving down the line. Assalamu alaikum. It is really a joy and an honor to be here at the UMA conference. Uh, I'm humbled by... uh, the resources spent to bring me here uh, to be with you. And I don't take that lightly at all. It is really, uh, truly an honor to be here. Um, I am a minister, a Presbyterian uh, pastor in Portland, Oregon, Beaverton, Oregon, at Southminster Presbyterian Church. I've been one for about 27 years, serving four different congregations. I'm also a radio show host. Uh, For seven years, I've hosted a weekly radio program called Progressive Spirit. Um, And then more recently, I have a once-a-month show on KBOO in Portland. And it's in, it's in, it's in the context of that that I was able to go to uh, Iraq for Arba'in in 2018, uh, courtesy of the Husseinia Islamic Society of Seattle and Zara Abadi with the forward vision of bringing people, um, non-Christians, non-Shia Muslims to uh, Iraq to experience that and bring it back. And what I did is I ended up going and bringing back a 29-minute documentary. Um, you can, uh, it's called the For Love of Hussein, and you can find that on YouTube. And so um, it was a transformative experience for me, and so I'm very happy to talk about that. Assalamu alaikum. Kashif Heather. I'm a gastroenterologist by profession and live in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Um, it's an honor to be here talking about Imam Hussain al salam. You know, that is, that is our passion. Everybody who's here, you know, Karbala, Ashura, Imam Hussain, this is, this, is, this is what keeps us alive. So, similarly, I have, you know, I had a chance about six years ago to go to Iraq for Ziyarat, and that did something. You know, I'm sure everybody has that experience here. It, you, you fell in love with Karbala. You want, you never want to leave. Um, but you know, in the in the same uh, token, you know, we wanted to do something um, actually to help the people who go for the Ziyarat. 
Um, so I have been involved, I had an opportunity to get involved in a hospital project in Karbala, um, Imam al-Hujjah Hospital. I've been involved with that for the last six years. Um, other than doing the medical work in Karbala, uh, there's another beautiful opportunity which happened, and that's why I'm here talking to you. Um, in this whole experience, I have opportunity to take some non-Shias and non-Muslims to Karbala with me. And I, that was the most wonderful experience I had. I will share some stories. There was a non-Shia Pakistani physician who wanted to come with me. And I was a little bit confused initially that why does he want to come with me. But when I saw him, uh, his his reaction to visiting the, visiting the shrine of Imam Hussain it really shook me, it opened my eyes. And then I also had an opportunity to take the CEO of my, the hospital where I work at in Kentucky with me, um, Dr. Steve Toadwine, who's also a physician. And his wife, who is actually a cancer patient, she has uh, metastatic lung cancer. And when they expressed this desire to come with me to Karbala, I was really uh, confused initially, why would they want to go, and I had a talk with them, and I told them, you know, Steve, it's okay that you want to come with me, but I'm not sure Anne should come with us because she's sick and she's, she's on chemotherapy. Um, but she told me something which really uh, impressed me. She said, you know, she has metastatic cancer, she shouldn't have been alive, uh, but every day that she wakes up is a gift from God and she will stop her chemotherapy two weeks before she was ready to go to Karbala so she doesn't have any complication when she's there. So after these experiences, I really would like to explore the possibility to open Karbala to everybody. We should have a way, just like the pastor went there, um, and these two friends who went with me. I, I don't know why we should limit Karbala to the Shias only. Um, Imam Hussain belongs to Allah, and everything which is Allah's is Imam Hussain's. We should open this up to everybody, and we don't have to do anything. You know, when something is beautiful, everybody appreciates the beauty. Imam Hussain will do the job himself. We just have to open the doors for people. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, my name is Yasser Haider. I am an orthopedic surgeon in Toronto, and uh, <clears throat> that's my professional uh, accolade. But um, I am involved with the Mamul Hujja Hospital, um, like Kashif is, and I want to help with this project of taking some non-shias to Karbala. But I'll say one thing: what we have, nobody has. The message we have, nobody has. But we are like a blind guy selling sunglasses. We ourselves are the biggest problem. We have limited Imam Hussain just for Shias. And you would not believe how much love there is among the non-Shias and some of the non-Muslims about Imam Hussain. There are some questions I'm sure we'll talk about um, in, in, in the next discussions. But, you know, the new age, the digital media, combined with the ziyarat of Imam Hussain, can change this whole world. 
And I'll briefly say this, that whatever happened in the history, right from the Waqai Karbala, right, right from these Hastis walking from there to Sham and then back to Medina, but back to Sham and get buried there. And you look at these stars spread all around. Why? How? What's the geopolitical ramification? What's going on nowadays? These countries would not have survived if it wasn't for them. So our role is combine digital media, latest technology, with this powerful message which nobody has. It becomes a mix which nobody can resist. Thank you so much. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Salamun alaykum wa rahmatullah everyone. It's quite telling that we have such a jam-packed room, mashallah, for this topic. Um, let me start off by saying that uh, when you look at the small army of Imam al-Hussein, you see a group of people united only around their loyalty to Imam al-Hussein because in every other aspect of their lives they could have come from completely different places you cannot make this up brothers and sisters you had an army made up of slaves and tribal chiefs and slave owners and peasants and the poor and the wealthy and the white, and the black, and everyone in between. It is incredible how this tiny gang of people also included amongst them Christians. Christians who were not very common in the Arabian Peninsula, in Iraq. And the mere fact that you had people there who saw a mirror reflection of Jesus in Imam al-Hussein. Everything they've been told about Jesus, all the noble virtues of this great messenger of God, were epitomized in Imam al-Hussein. The, the same person who's connected directly to all previous divine messengers and apostles. And so the variegated nature of the army of Imam al-Hussein, if we can even call it that, the incredible mosaic of different people and backgrounds and ethnicities and creeds and colors that all came together in a show of loyalty the like of which history has never witnessed should be a guiding principle and an inspiration for all of us to understand and I echo the words of the co-panelists that I have here I'm blessed to be with that Imam al-Hussein has a universal message and a universal appeal and a, a flavor that everyone will gravitate to. The ziyara of Imam al-Hussein on the day, on the 15th of Sha'ban says, Ashhadu annak. And the ziyara on the 15th of Sha'ban is one of those visitations that's not about the virtues of Imam al-Hussein. It's almost like a military salute. It's very short, it's to the point. And it says, Ashhadu annak. I bear witness. قُتِلْتَ وَلَمْ تَمُتْ You were killed, but you never died. 
بل برجاء حياتك حيت قلوب شيعتك in fact it was the the radiant pulsating energy that emanated from your presence and your martyrdom that continues to give life to us as human beings and if we can somehow tap into that source of infinite energy if we can somehow try and seek inspiration from that we could truly transform the world brothers and sisters the closest resemblance to peace on earth is ziyaratul arba'in the closest resemblance to people of different backgrounds and 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 ethnicities coming together in the love of something bigger than them offering everything they have for total strangers is ziyaratul arba'in and that's one tiny aspect of the imam his ziyarah which has transformed the region now in a phenomenon called arba'in imagine what we could do with the rest of the teachings and moral examples of imam al-husayn and that should be our goal inshallah thank you They told me that near you heaven can be seen So why was I denied the ziyara of Arba'in? My tears in silence are now calling out Hussein My tears in silence are now calling out Hussein Salawat Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Ali Al-Hadi. I am a singer-songwriter and music producer. Um, I am the head of a record label and production company, multimedia production company called The Awaited Group. And I will inshallah join you today um, with the more multimedia kind of opinion on, on this topic. Thank you very much to all our panelists for those opening remarks. Um, and, you know, this is the conference of Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, and we might be thinking to ourselves, oh, you know, Muharram is still two months away. Why are we already talking about Imam Hussein? And I think one of the most common questions that people have in Muharram and one of the most common issues that people experience is an inability to emotionally co connect with the story of Imam Hussein. You know, you get to Ashura and you're like, well, why am, why am I not crying? Why do I not feel it this year? And it's difficult to feel for someone who you don't have a connection to and who you don't, aren't thinking about and don't have um, sort of an ongoing correspondence with throughout the year. If you skip to the end of a novel when there is the tragic death of a character, you're likely not going to be affected by that, by that tragic ending unless you've read the entirety of the novel, you've gotten in touch with the character's character, his, his or her personality, um, why it is that their end was so tragic. Um, so I think it's really important for us to be speaking about the message of Imam Hussein, and I think one of the most important aspects of this is keeping an ongoing correspondence with the Imam Salam and with his story and his character throughout the year. So that when Ashura does come around, we don't feel the need to reconnect with Imam Hussein. We just feel the, the weight of his tragedy. So with that being said, um, 
I'm going to begin with the questions now. And the first question I have is that social media and the internet more broadly can pose great dangers in our communities. We all know um, sort of the negative effects of social media, too much time on social media, and the effect this can have on our attention spans, our brains. Is the best solution to create alternative content like that of uh, the message of the Imams Salam, or should we instead push for a move away from these platforms in favor of deeper social and intellectual connections? Should we avoid dealing with complex or nuanced topics on online platforms where things can easily be misconstrued? So I think that the dangers of social media are widely uh, documented. It's, uh, it's not only Muslims who are complaining about the um, negative side effects of a social media addiction and other dangers that lurk in, in cyberspace. And I think if, if, we're, if we're going to stick our heads in the sand, and hope that our, our communities don't get sucked into social media, uh, that's also a mistake because whether we like it or not, it's, it's out there, it's one of the means by which people not only communicate but receive the bulk of their um, information, mostly in the form of memes and emojis. And it, it is what it is, right? It's a reality that we have to grapple with. And I think the best approach really is to take an offensive approach as opposed to a defensive one. Meaning that, I mean, you know, I, I've been involved in social media for quite some time now. And I feel that a lot of youth resort to social media um, for religious guidance. And I think there's a space for that, right? Just like, you know, demonic terror groups like ISIS is able to use social media to recruit fighters and uh, groom people from, from far-flung places, even convert non-Muslims into their demented version of Islam through Twitter direct messages, I'm sure we could use the same tool to spread the message of Imam Hussein. It's just more tricky because with a demonic terror group like ISIS, you're, you're talking about a group of people who are highly trained, highly refined uh, message that is delivered using social media. Whereas the vast majority of Shia Muslims and followers of Imam Hussein are not that well versed. And so uh, that means that they will have to um, really educate themselves prior to uh, taking to social media in order to spread the message of Imam Hussein. And so my, my suggestion uh, to people is, if you have to be on social media to serve a specific need, whether it be communication or news bites or whatever, that's fine. But if you want to spread the message of Imam Hussein, you really need to dig a little deeper than a YouTube video or a Facebook post or what have you. You really need to educate yourselves by reading books, by researching, by actually doing the groundwork 
before you're able to uh, to become an evangelist for Imam al-Hussein. Uh, but until then, it's, it's, we should be in damage control and try to limit negative exposure and addiction and whatnot because it is very easy to spread misinformation on social media. It happens all the time. It happens in politics. And it definitely happens in the world of religion as well. So it is, it is proceed with caution. That would be my message. I just think, uh, what would our Imam do if they had the same opportunity in the same era? And um, if we can't figure that out, then you look at the representatives of Imams. And like, like Sayyid said, now right now, um, Sayyid Sistani has his website. There are other ulama who are using this website. So I personally think, this is my own view, that it's more good than bad. Um, as they say nowadays, if you want to call your kids, just pull the plug on Wi-Fi. It has the power. You can't, you can't deny it. And I personally think that Imam Jafar al-Sadiq uh, would have actually established a university or a school or a college to understand the social media and the power of media and how to use it. There's a very famous Coca-Cola advert, which is known to be the most successful advert in the history of advertising. And they call it the hilltop moment. This is when, at the time, the CEO of Coca-Cola, this is early 70s, was traveling to Ireland. Their flight got diverted. And they ended up in another airport with all these fellow passengers. And it was hot and there was no AC at the time. What they did, they served Coca-Cola. And then it came to his mind that there are diverse people from all over the world who are sitting here drinking Coke and chatting with each other. They don't know each other, but they are talking to each other and mingling. So from there he had, had this idea of producing this advert which ran in one of the Super Bowls here in U.S. in 1970s, in which there were this bunch of people from different races and colors, which in those days in 1970s was very unusual for a company like Coca-Cola to think about it. So when they did produce that ad, it became that lot of uh, different color, young, old people sitting together and uh, producing that moment. I think right now we have this opportunity to get this message right, but with professionalism. We have people among ourselves, among Shia youths, I know they are high up in Google and in the, in, in, in the social media companies. And we had this conversation in Toronto in our Bathas Timambara. He came and gave a lecture to us and said, you don't understand social media. Social media has become a science. You need to deal it with uh, like a science. And I think Imam Jafar Salaam would have dealt it like a science. I would like to add a few words to what the Sayyid and the brother said um, regarding something that now we're looking at it in, in any like in kind of form objectively, but without the subjective point, the objective is actually blind. Um, we need an expert in that area. Um, I'm just going to give a regular example. A lot of people go to the gym and they work out, but they don't know what they're doing. But when they get a personal trainer, things move. 
Uh, and this is the exact same thing when it comes to social media, for example. Um, we need experts. We need people who understand that world uh, combined with the knowledge we have from our respected scholars. And I think in that way we can um, send the pure, real, uh, genuine message of Imran Hussein through social media. And I am a big supporter of social media. I think it's a great uh, opportunity, it's a great tool that we can use to spread peace and wisdom. Are there any questions from the audience about this question before we move on? Yes. So creating different content for different age groups and demographics and being able to target select audiences as a part of this endeavor. So I'll, I'll say a few words there. So I think we need to distinguish between uh, an institutionalized uh, campaign on social media and uh, the individual end user responsibility. Right. So when, when we speak to an audience of people who are, um, you know, uh, admirers and followers of Imam al-Hussein and the Ahlul Bayt, um, then what we're doing essentially is encouraging them to, uh, to have a more active role in social media as opposed to becoming, you know, passive um, consumers of social media. And so essentially putting the responsibility on the shoulders of every single individual who is on social media to uh, contribute, to engage, to you know, write posts, to try and become creative and come up with a catchy means of, um, uh, of, of spreading the message of Imam Hussein. And that's something that's available to everyone and it doesn't really have to have the sort of specialized skills that, that you're talking about. Anybody, wherever they may be, whether it be, you know, if they're active on Snapchat, then obviously they know how to use the medium. If they're active on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, each one has its own unique characteristics and, you know, you know better what to do. And, and I, I guess we should trust the end user to, to come up with creative ways of trying to um, spread the message of the Imam and spread awareness about the Imam. Um, I'll give you a quick example. In Across the world, we have what, what is traditionally called Julus uh, on the day of Ashura or around the, the 10th of Muharram. So it's a procession, people come out, and it's, uh, it's a condemnation of Yazid and his attributes, and it's also sort of, you know, um, a means of drawing attention uh, toward Imam al-Hussein and his legacy uh, in, in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere, in an ambiance that is largely non-Muslim. In the UK, in Manchester specifically, a couple of years ago, they decided to become a little more creative and find out what, how, to, how to refine this julus. Because julus, most of the times, is very traditional, has a distinctly foreign flavor. Uh, but these guys said, you know what, if we're going to tap into the British uh, market, then we need to refine our message. So what they did was, they hired a PR agency. 
an advertising agency and they gave them all the literature they had about Imam Hussein and they said, could you come up with some kind of a campaign strategy for us? And what they did, I think, was nothing short of genius. They ended up holding a julus where it was a silent funeral and they had a horse carriage with a hearse and everyone was wearing those old British caps and everyone um, behind them was completely silent. They weren't doing matam or anything like that and they walked behind the hearse as though it was a royal funeral. And the feedback they got was absolutely incredible. People were stopping saying, who's the member of the royal family with about 50,000 people marching behind them that we never heard about on BBC or Sky News? And so I think we can trust individuals and organizations to, be, to, to try and you know, become a little creative when it comes to refining the message of Imam al-Hussein. Um, but if what you're talking about is having an institution that specifically caters to this market, and I think that's where you need more professionals involved and you need experts in the field and whatnot. Or you could just do what I did, which is befriend J.K. Rowling, God bless her, a good friend of mine, on Twitter, and as an influencer with something like, I don't know, 15 million followers or something, um, suddenly I see one of my posts absolutely exploding, um, like 500,000 shares and whatever, and it turns out that the one and only J.K. Rowling was the one who retweeted it, so you could, you could always do that. He's a big supporter of Imam al-Hussein, by the way. I think just for the sake of time, we'll move on now to our second question. Um, and there's overlap with some of these issues, and we can talk about them more, inshallah, at the end. So the second question um, I want to pose is, both Western groups and Muslims from different communities often post images and videos of Shari Muslim devotion during Ashura to propagate a certain image of the Shari Muslim community. How do we deal with and address expressions of devotion to the Ahl al-Bayt that may be seen as extreme or backwards to outside audiences? What is right or wrong and should be denounced as such? How can we have these conversations internally without causing disunity and disagreement within the community? And what image should we seek to project outside of our community? I'll be very brief. I'll just give you an example that when we started having social media explode in the last 10-15 years, before that, I being an orthopedic surgeon, I used to do knee replacements, hip replacements, quite gory surgeries, a lot of blood and splatter and saws and drills and all stuff going on. And it, nev it, it used to be just for a few eyes, just for the surgeon and the nurses and the uh, OR staff to see. Patients would just go in, go to sleep, come out with a bandage on their knee. But now, thanks to YouTube and the social media, patients come to us, and there are two types of patients. One who are on our list, they see the surgery, they freak out, and they call and cancel their surgery. But there's unbelievable large group of patients who actually come way more prepared than they used to be in the past with a lot more relevant questions than non-relevant questions. So the, the, the message is 
that don't worry about what the fake news or the people who are bad intentions show about Matam or Zanjir or blood and splatter and all that. Whether you disagree with it or agree with it, that's a different discussion. But to me, I think, like Sayyid said very nicely, that people in Manchester adapted to their local scenario. And things are already changing. You don't need to help a person who is already on its way out. So there are some old traditions which are on their way out. Social media showing these images are raising questions in the minds of Shias and non-Shias, which to me is good. We, this platform of media used to be the domain of only few. BBC, CNN, rich guys who could only own billions of dollars of firms, and you and I had no say. Now, it is democratized, but don't take it for granted. It's not going to last very long, because they are already thinking of how to clamp down on this, and how to control it, how to win elections through it, how to change the regimes, and so on. So be careful. Know about it. It's not as simple as going on Facebook and Twitter and so on. But, sorry, I spoke too long, but uh, basically don't be afraid of these images they are showing about the Shias. I think there will be good coming out of this. Uh, I want to add uh, to what the Sayyid and the brother said regarding responsibility. Responsibility is very important and each individual has a responsibility when it comes to social media. And I want to quote Abraham Lincoln. He said, don't believe in everything you read on the internet. Uh, so uh, just be careful, you know, with the pictures that's out there, like, and stuff. And don't, don't be a person who... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. But don't be one of those who just, you know, retweets or re-shares um, whatever there is out there just for the sake of Hussein. Um, we understand. I believe in your intention. It's pure. It's nice. It's, it's beautiful. But be smart. Use your brain. And um, just be careful. And be responsible. I, I would just... Um add to this question like, or have a follow-up question because I feel like there are two ways that the reaction can be. You know, we can say, um, oh, don't, this is fake news or just ignore it or it'll, be, it'll fizzle out eventually or this is a minority thing. But the counter to that is that in many communities, it's actually very common. And this issue is something that Shia communities in the U.S. and abroad often split over you know, how to react to these things, um, whether, whether or not there should be these practices in the masjid or whether or not they have a place within the tradition, etc. And, you know, on the one hand, we want to say, um, you know, regarding many things, we don't want to just completely adopt Western standards and say that certain things are backwards just because they don't conform to certain Western conceptions of how grief should be expressed or how um, emotions can be dealt with. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, these things really can serve to drive people away from the underlying message of Imam Hussein. Um, so if, for example, we see these images online or if someone approaches us and asks, you know, what, what is sort of the status of these practices. What, what should be the response of responsible 
educated Muslims who are seeking to propagate the message of Imam Hussein but don't want to um, either drive people away or, you know, be dishonest about the place of these practices. Yeah, looks like I'm the icebreaker. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I will say this. Um, if you Google Ashura or Muharram or Imam Hussein um, in Google Images, you will end up seeing a lot of very gory pictures. Uh, in fact, I remember once I did this experiment where um, I scrolled all the way down to the bottom of the page and it was just none of, nothing but those pictures. And then I went to the second page and it was exactly the same. And the third page, and then at some point I just gave up. So whether it's the algorithm that's doing it or the, the frequency of the people uh, looking at those images or videos, I don't know. Um, what I do know is this, that if someone approached me and said, you know, why is it that... Uh, you do this to yourselves, it's self-flagellation, it's disgusting, it's gory. What I will say is, look, we represent a worldwide community of over 300 million people. And a tiny, tiny minority of people practice these forms of um, mourning for Imam Hussein. And you can debate them on whether it's right or wrong, but at the end of the day, it's a tiny minority. We can see this in our own communities, right? You see a mosque where, you know, seven, eight thousand people attend that mosque and on the day of Ashura when they have the Zanjir and they have the Tatbir, there's like, I don't know, 50 people doing it or a hundred people. So percentage-wise, it's a tiny group of people. But of course the Daily Mail is going to try and focus on that instead of the positive message of Imam al-Hussein. Of course some of these ultra-conservative, far-right media groups are going to uh, try and highlight these aspects of the morning rituals of Imam al-Hussein as opposed to the very positive uh, message of Arba'in, for example. I remember I was in London one year and they had this massive procession. By the time I arrived at the scene, the police had counted the number of participants and they said that it's over 30,000. By the time we got it on, it was around 45 or 50,000 people. Marble Arch was filled to the brim. And I remember saying, you know what, how about a little chant here today? Where is the BBC? Where is Sky News? Where is all the other media outlets focusing on this? The beautiful, positive images of men, women, and children carrying placards against ISIS and terrorism and whatnot and, and holding their heads high in, in pride as followers of the one who fed and quenched the thirst of his own enemies, Imam al-Hussein. But of course they're going to go to the tiny minority and focus on them. So you know what? I couldn't care less what the media wants to focus on. I will do my bit. I will spread the message of Imam al-Hussein. And as, as the dear doctor mentioned, that we need to customize the message in accordance with the environment around us. Ayatullah al-Uzma al-Naini, the teacher of Sayyid al-Khoi and other luminaries, famously says that each culture should commemorate Imam al-Hussein in their own way. And so I see it's beautiful that in Oslo, Norway, they give out hot chocolate in the middle of the street. I think it's beautiful, because it's cold over there, right? So, and I think it's beautiful that if you go to other places, they give you like, you know, cold saffron drinks in some parts of Iraq or Iran. So commemorate it in your own way. Be mindful of how people may interpret or misinterpret the message, but do the positive message, and who cares what the others say? Thank you very much, Sayyid. This is beautiful. 
what you said. I just want to say one thing, and that is that in this, you know, um, I, I fully understand what you're saying, sister, about those images. We've all seen them, and we're all concerned about that. But also, in, in a wave of trying to condemn that, let's not kill the passion for enormous Islam I mean, our own community. You know, each one of us, one of the main reasons we are Muslims, or we exist, is because of our passion and our love for Imam So, you know, the passion is important. How, just like the Sayyid said, the way we express that passion has to change with time and the location we are in. Oh, absolutely, and I, I completely agree that expressions of grief can vary culture to culture, and we should not impose our, um, our understandings of how grief should be expressed, which have emerged in a very particular context um, over many years, subliminally by all the messages and signals that we absorb from the society we live in, um, onto something that originated in a very different time and space. Um, I'll let you... I just want to add one thing, uh, um, as I've done the last three times now. Um, when we talk about responsibility and what the media says and so what, uh, of course, uh, I mentioned before the responsibility. In 2011 till 2014 and still to today, in Syria there is a war going on. And a lot of people fought in that war. Uh, Lebanese people, Afghanis, uh, and whatsoever. And the media was only talking about rebels and, and the government, but we, we as Shia, we are identified with Sayyidah Zainab. So in that period, no one spoke about how we as individuals in the West could fight for the right to have a shrine for Sayyidah Zainab, for example. So um, a group of people called me and they said, can you write a song about Sayyidah Zainab? And I did that. and. Uh, we discussed uh, like a long-term topic and we created a music video uh, and a sheet video called My Beloved and it in Arabic talks about um, the followers' uh, relationship with the Sayyidah Zainab and in the video it starts by, and if you watch it, you can go watch it on YouTube it's, if you write My Beloved Ali Al-Hadi you will find it it, it, it will show you um, five guys who are like training and ready to go and fight and in the end they take out a paper saying we are all your Abbas or Zainab like we can defend, we can fight with the pen, uh, with the pen. so you should and I should and everyone should do that 
we have the opportunity through social media to fight to show uh, the world the real picture, the, the, the beautiful picture of Imam Hussein and Ahlul Bayt, we should go and do that. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, no, no, that, that's fine. Are they brief questions? Okay. I'll, why don't you both ask and then we'll let them respond and then move on, inshallah. There we go. The first thing I'll say is that I went to Arba'i and I didn't see any of those things. Um, I saw all positive images. And so when people ask me about that, and they do, because uh, my own community is very, um, is influenced like all of us by Islamophobia and media. And I'd love to talk about that. But, um, so I just say that wasn't real in terms of my own experience. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just meant that that's a minority view or, or view that some people have. And that's up to the Shias to decide how they're going to do that. Uh, yeah, sure. We, I, oh, my gosh, I'm embarrassed by Christians all the time. I mean, <laughs> you know, but you, you just say it, people are people. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be what you are about. I, I think when people use those kinds of arguments, they just want to put something down. And, um, and you just say, well, uh, as, as I heard yesterday, if you think I'm a Christian, don't ask me, ask my neighbor. Um, the, the aspect of being... Um, that I, I try not to do a whole lot of criticism of, of other faith groups, or in, in, including my own, uh, unless it really is against uh, the various principles that I have. And speaking in tongues is not. My mother spoke in tongues. Um, I, I, I've developed with that. I grew up in that tradition. So, um, and it actually, it's quite a beautiful one in many respects. So, I, I think that there are many positive ways to approach God. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. And there was another question. Yes. The Sayyidna, 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 go for it. I got you. I got you, man. Well, <laughs> I do recitations in Muharram as well, and um, I usually do it for um, for the communities that are engaged or believes in that. And I have rarely seen any. Um, any other people coming, attending to, for example, Latum Nohe. Um, 
I am personal. I'm going to talk about my personal view. My, uh, the Islamic view is like I believe in the freedom to practice and do whatever you want. Uh, but when it comes to what I believe in personally, I don't believe uh, it's the best idea to, um, as an individual in the West, go out on the street and uh, practice these things. But you can do them in the Husseiniyah. And the Sayyid, he gave a really good example with the Manchester thing. And he said um, that was, ex for example, an idea onto how to, to kind of engage in those things. So I think that way is the better way. Producing um, some media stuff, um, producing something that can get the message out in, in the more like righteous way or more more fine way that the for example for example a Western person will, will understand it. And of course um, we should uh, keep what we have of traditions in, in Muharram, the, the right traditions. Am I wrong, Sayyid? No, no. No comment. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. I, I will say this, that we believe in individual freedom and liberty. And that means, you know, we always talk about the verse in the Qur'an, لا إكراه في الدين. There's no compulsion in religion. And I think there's definitely no compulsion in how you should mourn Imam Hussein, right? Um, I think anyone is more than capable of deciding for themselves how they wish to express their grief for um, arguably the greatest tragedy history has ever seen. Um, but my, my point is that if you think there's a practice that's counterproductive, for example, focus on the productive practices that you think will work. Um, in this day and age, producing documentaries, for example, is an excellent way to draw people's attention to your cause. Because let's face it, you know, if, if you post a video on YouTube and it's successful and it spreads, then you can expect to, I mean, probably not a documentary about Imam Hussein. It's not going to get that sort of viewership. But if it's K-pop or something, then you can expect like tens of millions of views overnight, which is stupid. Um, or those makeup videos, which somehow, I, I, I honestly don't get it. How are they so popular? Um, or, like, I always talk about how people like the Kardashians are famous for being famous. Like, I can't figure out, for the life of me, what is it about them that's so appealing? But anyway, um, I'm not judging. What I'm saying is, you, you, have to figure, you, you have to carve your own niche. There's a beautiful hadith in... Kitab al-Khisal by Shaykh al-Saduq, which is a highly recommended read for people who want to start off reading, you know, um, original uh, traditions of the Ahlul Bayt. Kitab al-Khisal, by the way, translated into English. There's a hadith in it which says that our followers uh, will always have a minimum of one of these attributes. And the Imam mentions three. He says they, they are either physically beautiful or they sound beautiful, they have a beautiful voice. Looking at you right here. Um, or, or they're highly intelligent and eloquent and smart, right? So no matter who you are, you at least have one of those qualities. And you're able to use the skills that you have, the gifts that you have, in order to bring attention to the message of Imam al-Hussein. Um, don't listen to the neg negativity. Don't be bothered by the people who are trying to find some flaw or another to paint you and your message and that of Imam al-Hussein in a negative light. There's a video on YouTube, which I found amusing, where this guy, he's a YouTuber, 
uh, goes around, does interviews on the streets. And so one day, uh, it's an old video, I think it goes back to about 10 years or so. Um, there's, a, there's a protest on the street in Manhattan of uh, uh, Jewish men and women who are holding pictures of babies who have had uh, their, uh, their, their heads cut for Ashura. Right? Which, by the way, is a practice that I have never seen. And I've lived across the Muslim world. I have been engaged in this. I mean, I do this for a living. And I've never seen this happen to a baby. Does it happen somewhere around the world? I'm sure it does, right? People do all kinds of things. So they were holding these pictures, protesting on the street, saying, if this is what they do to their own kids, imagine what they do to us. What's funny is that this guy walks up to one of these ladies and he says, Hey lady, I'm a Jew, and I got a question for you. Is this barbaric? She said, of course it is. Look at the baby. The baby had no say. The baby never decided to have their heads cut like this. And uh, of course it's barbaric. It's vicious. It's vile. It's grotesque. And all the other adjectives. And he's like, oh, is it? Because I'm a Jew and I was circumcised, and I don't remember anyone asking me whether I, I give my consent for that. So if that's barbaric, my point is this. Everybody has some dirty laundry. Everybody, like I, I was at a church in Auckland, New Zealand just last month, and the, and the priest is like, you know what? People are talking about how Islam has verses in the Quran that are violent. I can tell you there are stories in the Bible that I'm ashamed to even mention. We're talking about prophets who say, God, could you please kill everybody, including the animals, the cattle, the children, and everyone. So everybody has things in their culture which are either outright, you know, not, not acceptable or civilized, or they're difficult for other people to understand. Do not be demoralized by the negativity. Do your bit and board the ark of salvation of Imam al-Hussein he's called Safinatul Najat board the ark of Imam al-Hussein contribute to his cause in some way or another whether it be a vlog or a podcast or a uh, I don't know an article or a vlog or anything it is and don't worry about everyone else I'll just say one thing which is kind of more medical related that in London, England in Tooting in the Dara Jafria um, there used to be a lot of, um, you know, Zanji and as the time passed, uh, there was a conflict. And then the public health came in. And because there's a lot of blood and there's a lot of people touching blood, then it became a medical issue because you are looking at hepatitis, you're looking at all the blood-borne infections and so on and so forth. So I think people in the West don't really, especially us Shias, have to worry about it. This thing in general will transform and that reminds me of at the time when they, we are from Gujarat, Pakistan. And we used to have a big jalous every Muharram. And then all of a sudden this, you know, after the revolution and every, we, we got inspired and we said, you know what, this whole Ashura is about saving Islam. And this Zohar Asr time goes by, people still keep doing Matam, nobody reads the Mass. So we're going to stop the Jalus and we're going to start doing the prayer on the, on, the, on the road. The biggest opposition came from the people who used to do Zanjeers. Because obviously it was hard for them to do the Wuzu and they had blood all over them. But eventually with, we just persevered, first time it was a challenge. 
But then everybody knew the truth and the fact that, you know, this is the prayer and this is what Imam Hussain, at the time of Asr, this is Ashura day, and you are not willing to read namaz. So all these people, they actually got subdued, generally, and they just fizzled away. So you do your thing like everybody's saying. But from medical standpoint, these things are on their way, way out, even if they are minority. I just want to say one last thing, because... Uh, it might have sounded that I'm against doing matam on the street. I'm not. It's up to people what they want to do. I just believe that I would be able to deliver a more beautiful, a more decent message uh, and more powerful message through, for example, media. But again, it depends on who I'm dealing with. Please, please repeat that. Please, please. I beg you. <laughs> Can I make a comment here? You know, many of us are from Indian Pakistani subcontinent, Indian subcontinent. And you know, our ancestors, most majority of them who were Shia, came from Iran. And they, they this is nothing new. You know, they took the local, local tradition, the local language. They produced poets like Mir Anis and Dabir. You know, they, when I was in 10th grade, not because I was Shia, every kid in the class studied, when they studied Urdu literature, they studied the Marcia of Miranis, which was about Karbala. So we need to, if we are in the West, there is a reason we are here. We need to produce the literature at the same level that in Urdu poetry, you know, Ashura, Shamagariba, Dira Istaras, they are used in the poetry. We need to do that. Without doing this, you know, this will not change. Where is our poets? Why are all our kids are becoming physicians and engineers and lawyers? We need them to be in the social sciences. This is, this is what impacts the society. We need them to be artists within the realm of Islamic, you know, traditions. But we need, this is what we need. This, that's when we'll be part of this Western culture and change things. And Imam Hussain and remembrance of Imam Hussain will be in India. India is not a Muslim country. Ashura is a national holiday. Why? This is because of the contribution of our ancestors. So this is what we need to do here. Can I? I want to also, um, I think part of, part of that issue also is sort of the dichotomy now that we have between people who are doctors or physicians and then people who are poets or people who are intellectuals or people who are scholars. You know, in the medieval period, this distinction wasn't so, um, wasn't so sharp. There was no such thing as someone who was a doctor and he was just a doctor and he was nothing else and that was his whole life and he didn't do anything. I mean, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq is the prime example of this. He was, he was a learned man, a scholar, um, a reader, a writer, and also a prominent scientist and a prominent physician and all these things. So I think now we take our profession and we make that our identity and we behave as though we cannot foster other skills and become experts in other things and become well-versed in literature just because our lives are so, um, our livelihood comes from our um, scientific profession. So I think this is another thing that needs to change is our attitude, our compartmentalization of professions. And I just want to say one last thing uh, regarding your question. And uh, my esteemed panelists have said many um, pertinent things to this question. But 
regarding, and I'm not talking now about Zenjit or about, um, you know, people who are, whose blood is flowing into the streets, but on a very simple level, matam, be, the beating of chests, or even men who get very into it and I don't know why they take their shirts off, but they may take their shirts off. I just want to ask a question. So, there are many studies that say that prayer is very beneficial for the body, that many of the motions of prayer mimic, uh, m mimic beneficial positions, etc. But if a study were to come out tomorrow that told us prayer is actually really bad for your knees, doing sujud is terrible for your knees, it messes up your knees, what would we do? Would we stop praying? The, the point that I'm trying to make is that there are many practices that may not be beneficial for our physical health, like the beating of the chest. You know, people are like, oh, why would you inflict pain on your chest? These people, their chests are bright red. Why are they doing this? But then there are so many things that people partake in in society that put a toll on their bodies that we don't think twice about. You know, like people go to all-night raves and party all night and drink alcohol and do all these things and we sort of think of this as leisurely but then if someone um, ex someone lets out their passion and their uh, their sort of inner vigor on something like Matam we're like oh this is this is backwards so we might want to also uh, examine our underlying assumptions about what kind of self-harm we perceive as acceptable because of the society we live in and because of the things we've internalized. And maybe examine if we have double standards regarding Western versus Eastern practices. And I call this sort of like internalized Orientalism, where we see things um, that originate in the East as harmful, and then we sort of give a free pass for things that have just become normal because of all the things we consume in the in the West. So that's just another thing I want to keep in mind. And again, I'm not justifying extreme manifestations of this, but you know, if people are getting really uh, into matam and people are jumping and they're beating their chests and they're really, they're doing it passionately, you know what, at least that passion is channeled towards Imam Hussein. It's better than that passion being channeled elsewhere. Um, if, anyone, if anyone asks you why you're beating your chest, you should reply. I would reply, I'm beating my chest to ease the pain. That's my artistic reply. If anyone says, why are you beating your chest? I'm beating my chest to ease the pain. Yeah. Yes, please. I think I have to respond to this as an orthopedic surgeon. My specialty is knee replacements. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I can tell you this that this study which Sister was talking about, um, actually the first study which was carried out, was actually in Middle East. And they were blaming the sitting position during the prayer on the floor, like in Tashkent. But, you know, most of these studies which are being carried out, you have to take it with a pinch of salt. Because one of the biggest factor of having a knee osteoarthritis, either having it or getting it worse, is overweight, not sitting on the floor. So can you imagine the Arabs in Saudi Arabia or in Dubai 
they are not the best of the examples in terms of the BMI and body shape and so on and so forth. And I can scientifically tell you that one pound gain in your body weight is equal to four pounds on your knees. So you, you go and figure it out. How did they figure this out that this population has got knee arthritis or knee got worse because of praying and not the overweight? You have to look at the study and they did not pick up the difference whether they were overweight or not overweight. So I think we, we shouldn't worry about these things. What are IMA, are, if, uh, if this was such a bad thing, our IMA would have put the limit on sitting on the floor or you should not be sitting on the floor after, because they, if they were the best of the creation and with the best of the knowledge, they would have said it. So I think we should ignore these type of silly things because we are lucky to have these guides in our life. We don't have to worry about the studies, you just worry about what our, I'm, uh, Imam said. Thank you very much. There is so much more we could talk about uh, regarding these issues, but I'm going to move it on because we are running out of time. So my third question, and inshallah we can get through all five questions, is during Muharram people often use sayings of Western figures and intellectuals to show that Imam Hussein's message is universal. What does this indicate about how our communities seek to legitimize aspects of our identities? And how do we spread the message of Imam Hussein on its own terms? I'm, this is a question I wanted to address a, a bit, and I'm just going to spend a, a couple of minutes. I want to share something with you. Um, this is a, people ask me all the time, what did this experience of going to Arba'in mean to you? And I, so I wrote a piece uh, for the local paper that we have, Beaverton Resource Guide, all right? It uh, competes with the New York Times. <laughs> anyway, it, and, and it, 250 words. They asked me to write a column every now and then of something positive, and so I wrote about my experience. So this is, this is Arba'in from me, 250 words. Last October... I had the honor of participating in the largest annual peaceful human gathering on earth. It's called Arabain. During a two-week period, 15 million people, some estimates are as high as 20 to 30 million, visit the shrine of Imam Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad in Karbala, Iraq. People walk from Najaf to Karbala, a 50-mile walk, and have all their needs met, food, water, a place to sleep at night, anything they might need to make a successful visit. I came as a Christian pastor from America to show my respect for Hussein, and for his sacrifice on behalf of justice and truth. I made a film about the trip that you can find on YouTube called For Love of Hussein. I walked the 50 miles over two and a half days and touched the shrine of Hussein. I participated in the rituals of mourning and made friends with people from Iraq, Iran, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia, just a few of the over 60 nations represented. These faithful Muslims, heeding the call of Hussein to stand with the oppressed of the world, opened my mind and heart. What I came away with was a renewed sense. So sorry. I came away with a renewed sense of hope for humankind. When a Christian pastor from America is showered with love and hospitality from Shia Muslims in Iraq and Iran, 
you can't help but be hopeful. I wish all Americans could share this experience of unity. A just peace is coming for all of Earth. People get ready. My experience of Hussein and my interaction with Shias has been that. I'm an American. My genealogy goes back a long way. I'm, I'm white. I'm privileged. I'm very privileged. So I can say the things I'm going to say just right now. Um, I tell my church all the time I don't care what happens to the church. What I care about is that I'm 57. My granddaughter Pippa is two. What will the world be like when she is 57? And not only her, but all two-year-olds around the planet. And we live in a nation... Dwight Eisenhower said in 1961, he warned us of the military-industrial complex. This is, this is my bottom line. I'm just telling you where I'm at. You can decide if, if I'm on your team or not. Uh, and he warned of that, that we will become a military that will be economic and will be, we have to worry about it. It is magnified by orders of magnitude now. It's a military-industrial intelligence finance media complex. Uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post have not met a war it's never liked. We are, everything we have is, is, is aspect of this. Uh, Caitlin Johnstone is an Australian author. She said, Americans are the most propagandized people on the planet. We have, in a sense, we're free. But on the other hand, we are propagandized into continuing to support war. And part of that is Islamophobia. Uh, Islamophobia makes money. And it, it, it feeds this complex. And so when I experienced... Arba'in, and Hussein, and I saw these people walking and, and mourning and lamenting. Uh, I, catharsis, I'm sure. Um, the, the, the suffering of the world, the suffering of Hussein and injustice. And when I recognize that she is uh, are oppressed, and it's not that I like you because you're oppressed, <laughs> but you're oppressed because you stand up for what is right. You resist um, this this ongoing militarism and this ongoing injustice. And you're the people we need to stand with. And you have a gift. Imam Hussein is a gift to the world. And I'm a Christian, and he does mirror Jesus to me. And I'm sorry for being so tearful. I didn't really expect this at all. But I want you to know that you are a minority, but you're a minority with a message. And that is the place to be. Don't sacrifice that to be famous or to get heard in, in whatever it might be. You have a, a message of a minority to be proud of and to, and to be shouted from the rooftops in whatever form it takes. And so, I, 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 again, I, I bless you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to know you, and I'm happy to be a part of, of, of this, this ongoing thing. And, 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 uh, and, and I, I hope that that is a part of what the message is of Imam Hussein. Um, thank you. This is what happens when you take somebody from a Christian or a Sunni community to Arbain. So how many of you have been to Karbala? Please raise your hand. And, and I think there should be a tax to this. 
anybody who goes more than three times to Karbala has to next time, fourth time, take somebody who is not a Shia. I'm, I'm just putting this figure out. You know, it, it's not easy. But say to yourself that, because we see a lot of people going to Umrahs every year for the last 30 years. Nothing changes. So I think we don't want to fall in the same trap. I think promise yourself that, you know, you will, and Kashif has already spoken about this, and this is his passion to take some uh, non-Shias and uh, Christians and uh, Sunnis and uh, with you. So please, th this is the result, because you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is to take somebody to show them. We have the biggest, I mean, this is not the perfect example to give, but, you know, everybody watched Disney cartoons when we were young, right? But actually, when you go to Disneyland, it's different. <laughs> right? So, I mean, there is something when you go there, it happens to you. And that's not up to us. Our job is to just get out of the way. We are the biggest hurdle because we think we own Imam Hussain. And I was saying this in the other thing, other session, that last year when me and Kashif, we went to, uh, to Karbala, we saw this so many Sunnis, buses after buses after buses, sitting in Bairul Haramein. We actually, Kashif actually sat with them and listened to what they were beautiful. And I said to him jokingly, I said, you know what, I'm very jealous. I thought Imam Hussain belongs to us. How come they have come on the buses and taken over? So I think we are the problem. Thank you so much. If I may just say a few words here, as the Reverend, may God bless him, was speaking, I was reminded of the verse in Surah Al-Ma'idah, verses 82 and 83, in which God speaks about those who are uh, most loving towards the believers, and then God specifically says, those who say, we follow the one from Nazareth, because they include priests and monks who submit to the truth, and when they hear God's verses, you see their eyes overflowing with tears. And as he's speaking, I can fully picture this, the, these two verses um, coming into effect. So, subhanAllah, um, may God bless you, Reverend. And I think that, um, uh, as, as you were saying, he represents those who see the beauty, the sheer beauty of Imam al Hussein, and can't help but fall head over heels in love with it. Most of us, I guess we're privileged to have grown up in this culture. We've heard the name of Hussein uh, being whispered in our ears from the moment of our birth, but we kind of grow um, sort of complacent and it, it becomes a recurring theme and so we, we forget the fact that this is um, a truly universal message that has to be shared and has to be spread. Again, the idea isn't to proselytize. The idea isn't to convert people. Um, but the idea is to share the fact that there is a person called Hussein. And this Hussein, one of the reasons when you visit the shrine of Imam Hussein is we recite what's called Ibn al-Dukhul. And Ibn al-Dukhul literally means to get permission to enter. And that permission includes you saluting the prophets beginning with the Prophet Adam all the way down to Jesus and then asking God for permission 
Because God is the custodian, he's the guardian of the sacred mausoleum of Imam Hussein. But the mere fact that you mention those prophets means that there is an arterial thread that connects the message of Imam Hussein to all of God's previous messengers. So I think that's really important. Another point I'll mention about that specific question, sister, which might be a, a bit controversial, and that is that, and that's kind of implied in your question, which is, are we trying to justify our identity by quoting, um, you know, Western writers and, and, and authors and uh, personalities and whatnot. And I think that there's nothing wrong with this, because if you're able to familiarize a non-Muslim audience with Imam al-Hussein by quoting someone that they hold in high esteem, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem, I find, is that most of the people that we quote lived about 200 years ago. And that's kind of upsetting. Like... If, if I were a non-Muslim, I'd be like, what have you been doing over the last 200 years? Why don't you have like present-day Nobel laureates talking about Imam Hussein? Why don't you have like the Secretary General of the United Nations or Barack Obama or whatever, you know? People who are famous today, as opposed to Charles Dickens and Thomas Carlyle and, um, and Gandhi, whose quotes are questionable. Um, like, I, I, haven't found, I haven't really found... Um, a, a, an authentic uh, quote attributed to Gandhi about Imam Hussein. What I found is what I read in the Arabic literature. And so, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but that's not the point. The point is a 16-year-old girl here in D.C. can't really relate to Gandhi any more than she can relate to Imam Hussein. So again, going back to your question, can we not introduce Imam Hussein on his own merit? Does Imam Hussein lack enough uh, slogans and chants and sermons and quotes and stances that are so close to everybody's heart that we have to resort to other people. So I, I don't think it's, a, it's problematic in any way. I just feel like sometimes we lose sight of the actual message of Imam al-Hussein and so we resort to others. What you felt right there was what I would describe as a revolution, a small revolution. Tears, feelings, pain, understanding, um, being worried about the future. That's, that's revolution. And that's what Imam Hussein is about. It's about revolution. And I want you to, to join me on this one. It's very simple. You have to just say Hussein. Revolutions by this name. This is called the love of revolutions by this name. This is called the love of this is called the love of Hussein. Understand with the blood of Hussein revolutions always no matter how much we are oppressed his name is forever praised when Hussein's love was brought to us into its eyes we all gazed 
and thank the Lord for blessing us with such light in our days. Can his lovers be ashamed? This is called the love of Allah. This is called the love of Hussein. Salawat. Thank you so much, everyone. These last two questions are related, so I will pose them both together. And inshallah, we can wrap up in about uh, 10 minutes. I apologize for going over time. Um, but the fourth question is, what are the most important factors in the content we create to promote the message of Imam Hussein and the Ahlul Bayt more broadly? Um, what, what should we root our message in? What should we root our content in? What should our goals be in creating this content? Are we just seeking to create awareness? Are we trying to uh, spark people's interest in the narrative more? And what advice or tips can you share with smaller grassroots Sherry organizations, artists, uh, young entrepreneurs who are seeking to spread their message online? All right, so I will say this. Um, it's a bit of a shameless plug here, but uh, I think the work that Ahrbeit TV has done over the last 10 years is, um, is incredibly important. I mean, the channel came uh, to the scene when uh, there was no other Shia, um, uh, English-speaking Shia TV channel existed. And one of the things we did from day one was we, we brought in presenters who were mostly reverts and we tried to limit the, uh, uh, the viewer's exposure to black and white turbans as much as possible and just have as many um, people who are more relatable to the general public to present our shows. And one of the things that the channel did quite successfully was produce cutting-edge documentaries about whether it be the pilgrimage of Arba'in or the shrine of Imam Hussein or how non-Muslims can relate to Imam Hussein and speaking to religious leaders about Imam Hussein. So there's a whole host, um, you know, hundreds of hours of documentaries produced uh, specifically about the subjects of Imam Hussein, some of which has had um, millions of views on YouTube. I mean, uh, I think the cha channel's YouTube channel uh, has uh, over 35 million views, so which is great. Um, so, cutting-edge media, I think, can can go a long way. I mean, you can cram into an hour-long documentary the contents of 10, 15, 20 books, right? And it, it's it's quite telling when you see a, a nun, for example, talking about her experience in Karbala. Uh, it's a very powerful message. It resonates with a lot of people. So I think that's something that, that's, that's doable. You don't even have to have your own TV channel to do that. You can, you can produce documentaries nowadays very cheaply. It really doesn't require a lot of money. What it does require is some creativity and willingness to, to go the extra mile and to, to put in the work, right? The first documentary the channel produced was called Karbala When the Skies Wept Blood. 
And that was produced with a budget of $2,000. And I think it was a team of five people that got together. I, I donated the camera and everything else they did on their own. And they sold over 100,000 DVDs. This is back in 2006, I think. Uh, 2005, 2006, 100,000 DVDs of, of this, uh, uh, of this uh, documentary because there is such a thirst for it. I know a brother, in, uh, also a revert, uh, who lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada, and he produced a stop-motion uh, film with Lego bricks about Imam Hussein. The story of Karbala, the entire maqtal, with stop-motion videos. And then he asked me to do the voiceover for Imam al-Hussein, which was a, an incredible honor. And I did. Um, he's now in the, um, in, the, in the final stages of producing uh, the cartoon. He did it in his garage completely on his own, using an old, terrible quality camera and a Lego set. You can do that is what I'm trying to say. You can really become creative and do things to spread your message across, inshallah. And I'll finish with this Bible verse, if I may. And I, I ask the reverend for his permission to do so. When I go to Arba'een, brothers and sisters, and going to ziyara is incredibly important. You can talk all about it, you can read all the books, but actually going, Imam Sadiq says, Muru shi'atana biziyarati qabr al-Husayn. Command our followers to visit the shrine of Imam Hussein, because you'll never be the same person when you get back. Never, ever. And so, when I went to ziyara the first time, I was reminded of a verse in the Bible in the book of Matthew. And the verse says, the reason I thought of it was because I saw, you know how you know, people go from outside of Iraq and they carry their national flag, right? So you see all kinds of flags of people marching. And when I saw that, I was reminded of the verse. And the verse says that then appeared another sign in the heavens. The Son of Man came and all the nations of the world were mourning. And I thought this, I'm not saying this is an interpretation of the verse, but I'm saying... This is the next best thing. All of the nations of the earth are represented here in Karbala. All of them mourning for Imam al-Hussein. And if we can get that message far and wide, we can contribute to that prophecy happening, inshallah. They say that a uh, picture... Uh, says more than a thousand words, right? Worth yeah, worth a thousand words. Well, Abraham I... Abraham Lincoln, by the way. Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it? George Washington, maybe? Yeah, maybe George Washington. But I say that a song, track, call it whatever you want, Latmiya Nohe can say more than a thousand pictures. So, people like me... <laughs> I said I say, not Abraham Lincoln this time. Um, people like me need support. We need support. We need your support. Uh, we need you to, to go on YouTube, to go on those social platforms and find our productions. We spend a lot of energy, efforts, and money on producing these things. And it's, just, it's not just like writing anything, just putting it out there. It's actually something that gets produced over a year. Inshallah, this year we will have an album out in English, fully English, 
uh, Uology album and last year we had one for Mullah Ammar al-Nashid which, uh, which I produced, it's called Again Here and you can all, all go on YouTube and find it if you write Ammar al-Nashid Again Here you will be able to find it very simple so I'm just asking you for your support and I hope inshallah that you will give me that by a like, by sharing, by listening that's how you can support us artists. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. So this is actually a question to Sayyid and uh, yourself, brother. Um, and this is for our young audience, basically I'm asking, that how do you make these projects financially viable not only financially viable, but actually providing for their livelihood. Because this is a crucial concern of the young people, right? They are in medicine or engineering or media. But at the end of the day, they have to bring food to the table. These things cost time and effort. And I think, yes, I mean, love of Imam Hussain, we do lots of things. But I think if you do them in a, in a way that it helps both ways. Uh, so how would you, like, first of all, I want to know, that what kind of finances people are looking at. I don't want to put a figure, but it's doable, if, whether it's doable or not, and whether it can be profitable or not, that's one question. Uh, second, just a comment that, you know, when we were doing this Imam al-Hujjah Hospital in Karbala, we taught a lot of Shia doctors and nurses and medical students approached us and said, we want to help, we want to help. And the problem happens when... Um, you know, good intentions are good, but at the end of the day, there has to be some accountability as well. So what happens is, if you get a lot of volunteers coming doing the work, but when you, for example, do not a good work, and if you go and question that person, that, for example, a patient or a surgery or a complication, and you say, why did that happen, and why didn't you do this in, the, in this fashion where it should be done, then it is, becomes a very difficult relationship because somebody has come to do this voluntarily. So then we decided, I think, we should be dealing with people professionally and should be, whatever nominal amount, they should be compensated because we should be able to question or have some accountability. So these are two, for, so I just want to ask both of you, because both of you have experience in the media, sure. just for the consumption of the media. Uh, I'll give you two examples. We did this video last year um, called To Shake or Not to Shake. And it's about, um, some of you are nodding, so I guess you've watched it. It's about um, Muslim uh, men and women not shaking hands with the opposite gender. And it's, you know, it's filled with memes and jokes and whatnot, and it's you know, kind of appealing. And uh, I did it with the help of two other guys um, and it, it didn't cost us a thing, right? Because it's just a YouTube video, right? There's not much, um, there's not, you know, you're not, you don't have a lot of consumables, you're not, um, it, you do it in your spare time. So it took us a while to produce, I'd say about two weeks. And in my experience, every minute of a high quality documentary uh, requires about 10 man hours of work, right? So the fact that the Reverend, God bless him, has produced this documentary means that, there, I mean, you, you can't tell when you watch the documentary, it's just an hour-long thing, but the fact is, it takes a lot of work, a lot of, um, you know, time and effort and, and sometimes money 
especially if you're doing it on location, uh, in order to produce it. It's not just a talking head in front of a camera. So you can produce things very cheaply in your own garage and achieve great results and hopefully with maybe a, a, a plug or a bump from Mahdi Mudarrisi, you can, you can get it to go viral. But if you want to do things that are high quality and that get picked up by the network television, um, uh, televisions and whatnot, then you're talking about a lot of money. And the way I look at it is this. I mean, with Ahlul Bay TV, for example, um, I always say to people, um, if you become members of, of this organization by donating 10 or $15, I mean, that's how much we pay for our Netflix accounts. I know a lot of people steal the logins of their friends and siblings and whatnot, but there are somebody, someone, somewhere has to pay for that. And, and, and for the cost of a membership with Netflix or Hulu or whatever service, services there are out there, you can become members of these organizations. There is a thing called Patreon, and on Patreon you can support people that you like, people that you think are doing good, meaningful work, and unfortunately Muslims are not there, Shias are not there, um, you, you know, but you have people who are making a lot of money so that they can focus on those projects, right? Uh, if a project like the documentary produced by our good friend, the Reverend, is not given the support that it requires, it obviously means that um, him and, and people like him will have to, you know, make too many sacrifices to be able to do these things, right? So these projects need the support. Um, you know, money makes the world go round. And, you know, for all the good intentions that you've been talking about, uh, at the end of the day, I say to people, if you want to do these things, make sure you don't quit your day job because, unfortunately, the mentality in our community is, oh, it's free, let's just get it bootlegged, let's just copy it. Oh, someone came up to me in New Zealand and said, say, you know, I got a question about something. And so I said to her, you know what, I've actually addressed this question in my book and it's on Amazon. And she's like, well, could you sell, how much is it? I said, we sell it literally at cost price, $6. We don't make any money off of it. She said, but do you have a PDF version that you can email me? <laughs> that's the mentality in our community. And, and, if, and if that's the case, the people who do these projects are truly special individuals who don't care about the money, who are willing to sacrifice their time and effort. And that's even more reason to support them, inshallah. Thank you. That was so relevant and beautiful because that kind of talks my pain out. Um, my pain's bigger, man. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> the channel needs a million dollars a year. Yeah, so. Well, I was in Australia um, two, year, uh, two, two, two years ago, not 2,000 years ago. <laughs> two years ago. Um, and um, I was really like picky when it came to you know the audio. I wanted the microphone to be like this and the speaker to be like that and this, this and that. And the guys were like, "Bro, we're just volunteers, man. Like, just just get it done." Like, and I'm like, "You're you're bringing me from Denmark to Australia to do a performing, so it has to be good. Like, it has to be acceptable at least." And they were like, "No, man." And then there was a guy. He's a reciter. Um, he was like, "You know, I have an album, and in my album, the beat on the latim." It's off. Like I produced it and it, by mistake it came off, but we don't care. It's for Imam Hussein. And that made me so angry. Because when I was eight years old, I was in the mosque in, um, 
in Copenhagen, I was helping with the audio. I was taking um, a cable and putting it up. So I just took it from this corner to that corner. Like, it looked really bad. And then the guy who was in charge, he came to me and was like, what is this? I was like, cable. He goes, yeah, but why did you put it like that? I was like, and so what's from Hussein? It's just khidmah. It's just to volunteer. And then he goes, if that was your home, and Imam Hussein would come in to see that, would you do it that way? And then I went silent, and I didn't know what to answer. So, and I told the reciter that story, and he, he also went silent, because these things has to be done perfectly good for you to feel uh, the replacement. For example, when it comes to what we call haram music, if you want to listen to a track that's going to give you that satisfaction and, and maybe um, relating feeling to it and to the Islamic part of it, it has to be done in, in a really good and professional way. And that costs a lot of money. I'm going to give you one example I did as a volunteering. Uh, it's a song called Ramadan Shahrullah, and we made it to build a school in Syria. And the video cost $5,000. We filmed it in uh, Beirut. And the song, only the strings in the song, they cost $3,000. And producing the song was uh, 1000 I wrote it and I produced half of it. So that took half of the cost. But it ended up by me using about $10,000. But because we did it so perfectly and I, I sent it from a, one guy to another, I wasn't satisfied with the result. It ended up at Tony Haddad. Tony Haddad is the head of Dolby Digital in Lebanon. He's the one who mixes for movies, for big movies, big budget movies. And he mixed the song and I got it and I was satisfied. And I released it. Two months after, we gathered about $120,000 dollars and we build the school with a pool to the kids to the orphans so thank you so what i'm trying to say here is that if you support people uh who do these things probably like the channel for example I sent them, um, you will get a result that will give a result that's how it is thank you so much Yes, it was. Um, thank you so much for all our panelists. I'll just echo what they said that, yes, it's important to do things with precision. It's important to do things with ihsan. Um, there's a hadith um, by Imam Ali salam that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves that if one of you is to do something, he do it with perfection. Uh, he do it with precision. Um, so it's definitely important to... To do these, to undertake these endeavors with precision, but that can only come with the support of the community. And as just to echo uh, what my esteemed panelists were saying, you know, we're so quick to drop money on Netflix or on Kylie Jenner's eyeshadow or things like this, um, silly, frivolous things. But for some reason, uh, we become hesitant when our money is going to support our Muslim artists and those in our community who are. Uh, undertaking artistic endeavors for the sake of Islam. So um, let us go forward with that in mind and with a spirit of generosity towards our brothers and sisters who are undertaking these important endeavors. And with that, I thank you so much uh, to our panelists. You uh, gave us so much wisdom.